the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined this week by our regular guests, writers for The Athletic, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Hello, guys. Hello, mate. Hello, nice to speak to you. Also, a man who played over 600 games for the Arsenal is Mr Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. Hello, how are we? Hello, mate. Very good. And our special guest this week is one of the greatest goalkeepers to ever play for our club, an owner, I believe, of the most lustrous hair we've ever had on this podcast. It's the goalie himself, David Seaman. Hello, mate. Hello, how are you? Well, I was I was the owner of illustrious hair. Yeah, yeah well, there, I've got to be honest, David, there have been quite a lot of questions about hair, and a lot of people wanted to know about the, hair, the care of hair and moustaches during the time of lockdown, and we'll get to that as well. Uh, right. I should say, by the way, yesterday uh, was the anniversary of you saving three penalties uh, in the semi-final against Sampdoria in 1995. Obviously, oh, yeah. it all went tits yeah. up in the final, but let's not dwell on that. Never um, mind about that, yeah. Never mind (laughs) about that. By the way, David, every week we ask how everyone's doing, but the truth is we know how everyone's doing. We're all detainees in our own houses. Um, Are you fishing? Have you got a stream at the end of the garden? I think Wrighty told me you had a stream at the end of the garden. It's a a bit bigger than a stream. It's a nice river, but um, it's out of season, so I can't really fish it at the moment. I can fly fish it and, and, and feed certain swims getting ready for June the 16th. Right, I didn't understand any of that sentence, but thank you, David. Uh, now, uh... Stoney, can I just interrupt one yes, second and say your introduction to the goalie was borderline brave because you said one of the best goalkeepers ever to play for Arsenal. Oh, that was noted, Dico. <laughs> and you, you I, left... I, was expe- I was expecting you to just zap the phone line immediately. And you, you left, you left the, the the out of the. Uh, mm. The yeah. Well, we've um, got yeah. we've got Manuel Almunia on next week, so we need to hedge our bets a bit. <laughs> yeah, I um I was thinking of Bob Wilson and Pat Jennings, but you know what? By the way, uh, we as like I say, we talked about hair quite a bit. We did actually think uh, about talking about um hairstyles for the Arsenal. Um, obviously, David, uh, the ponytail you had, but we were wondering yeah. if uh, if our if our um other guests had any ideas for the, the hairstyles they liked the most. Uh, watching Arsenal. Lee, we'll start with you. Well, I love Charlie. What, you mean mine or somebody else's? <laughs> not yours, Lee. I'm Other not people's. If you've got your own favourite hairstyle, you can share it with us if well, you I, want. I, but... I've literally had the same hairstyle at yeah. Arsenal and I've still got the same hairstyle now. And the only time I changed it was when I shaved my head for the Winners' Cup final. So, um, that was so that I kind of got. I think I might be going back to that tomorrow because I've got some clippers arriving. So once I get hold uh-huh. of them, could be disastrous. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to go for the one and only Charlie George. What a hairstyle that was! What? You got a, just brilliant. Not the perm. We're not talking about the perm here, are we? That he, that he no, affected in the... his later days at Derby. <laughs> No, the one, the cup final one, when it was all flowing behind him, you know, that, whatever that Love style it. was called. The Comet, I think it was. Um, James, what about you, James? Let's ask you about hair. Iconic Arsenal hairstyles. Well, I was thinking about another right back, actually, and uh, Bakary Sanya's white braids, only because, I don't know if you remember, there was a game in his first couple of seasons at Arsenal where he played without them. 
and he had the worst game he ever had in his entire mm. time at Arsenal. He was absolutely disastrous. And next week, suddenly, the Braids were back in. It was incredible. So they, he was a bit like Samson. They obviously had magic powers for him, so I'd have to go for that. I always was worried when he was jumping for headers that those, those braids would actually smack someone else in the face, to be honest. Oh, maybe that was part of his plan. Yeah. Uh, Amy, favourite hairstyle? Well, I'm, uh, I got gazumped by Lee because I was going to go Charlie George as well. Um, yeah. There's a fantastic photograph, actually, uh, an old fo- black and white photo of um, the sort of what might have been the team photo of the, of the time in the, the very early 70s. And the whole team is lined up on benches, but like in one long, long line. So it's not like one in front of the other. And um, it's taken a bit sort of sideways on and there's a few extra chairs at the end and Charlie's in one of them. And everybody's looking forward to the photographer except Charlie's just looking over his shoulder with his with his long, cool hair like a rebel. Um, <laughs> but if that one's been taken, I think I'll go for a couple of hairstyles that actually were commemorated in song. So Freddie Youngberg, oh, uh, yes. with his, with yeah, his red sure. hair, was you just, just a great. Mine, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, just just in case you haven't going to have this one as well, I'll take this one off you. But uh, he's got no hair, and we don't care, Stevie Stevie Bold. Yeah, it's oh, a good one. Uh, well, David, what have, what have we got left? We've been through quite a few. <laughs> Amy generally has two for any question we ask her. Right then. So, so what have you got? So, so now Amy's nicked my Freddie Youngberg. Um, I've, I've got to go with Manu Petit because he was the man that started uh, the ponytail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got about yeah. him as well. And to be fair, his was a lot better looking than mine. Uh, <laughs> his correct. was blonde and... Uh, what do you mean, correct? <laughs> <laughs> My favourite thing, by the way, about Manu Petit was when he got booked and he used to flick the ponytail out the way so the ref could see the number on the back of the shirt. <laughs> he used to love the disdain with which he did that. Can I have Merce, by the way, when he had the hairband? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, OK. I mean, let's not talk about that anymore. But um, We all forgot. Remember, no, we all forgot. No, sorry. Go on, Dave. Free ponytail is, uh, we were playing at, at, at Highbury, and um, so my hair was long. I mean, it was just getting too long, and I, I used to have to put loads of gel in it. And uh, this ball came over, and it was so obviously mine that the striker behind me had almost give it up. And as I turned my head, a massive lop of air went straight across <laughs> my eyes, and I totally missed the ball. <laughs> Luckily, the striker didn't give it up as well, and it went out for a throw I was like, All right, it's time to tie it back now. <laughs> Did that happen when, in, with uh, Naeem as well? Calm down. Oh, really? <laughs> While we're on the subject of hair, Lee, I did see a picture of you when you had your head shaved and it was you and Martin Keown. And Martin was um, was helping Chris Sutton up, I think uh, the phrase would be. And um, the two of you looked fierce. I've got to be honest, you looked slightly demented with that shaved head, if I'm honest with you. Well, and I, I, thought, I was going in as God. peacemaker. I was trying to save uh, Chris Sutton's life there because I think <laughs> Martin was just in the process of feeling his collar, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great photo. If anyone hasn't seen it, Leo, I think you posted it on Twitter yesterday, did you not? So Yeah, uh, I retweeted it, I think. Uh, now, David Seaman, our special guest. Uh, I was looking at your Arsenal career. Uh, you came from QPR, right? Yeah. I mean, you played Leeds and what have you, but you came from QPR to the Arsenal. Obviously, you must have understood the Arsenal way a little bit. Wasn't Don Howe your manager at Queen's Park Rangers for a while? And you were coached by Bob Wilson, I believe. Yeah, but Bob used to come in once a week, Um for probably a year and a half before I actually signed for Arsenal, um, obviously on scouting mission. Um, but yeah, Don, I think Don was part of the staff. I think Don was a coach. The way that the transfer happened was really strange as well, because they were trying to get it done before transfer deadline day. 
um, because I was out of contract in the summer. And obviously, when I went, Lukey dug his heels in, you know, as, as only Lukey can. And he didn't want to leave. So that meant that the transfer fell through. So I have to now go back. All the press were there waiting for me to sign a contract in front of them. And then George came in and said, sorry, it's not going to happen, guys. I go back to QPR and then, um, you know, you can imagine, you know, I, I didn't get a great reception for my next game. Quite a few of the QPR fans. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I'd, I'd shown all my cards. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange situation. Then the momentum started building with the fans singing that Luke is better than Seaman and all this sort of stuff. You know, so Some of was, the players were quite... singing that as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so it was quite difficult, but, you know, in, in my mind, I'd, I just wanted to get get to the Arsenal, and uh, and it was Don, Don and Ray Wilkins actually, because I'd actually spoken to Man United as well. So they was they said that they were going to come in the summer, but Arsenal had obviously put their money on the table. So I'd now got this choice of like signing for Arsenal or Man United, and uh, Ray Wilkins told me he says this is he says if you sign for Man United you won't win trophies straight away, but you will do later because they're a massive club. He said that if you sign for Arsenal you win you'll win trophies straight away. And that's exactly mm. how it turned out. And then, 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 I, then I spoke to Don, and Don went, "Just get yourself to the Arsenal, lad." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. That was it. David, we've had a question actually. We had a number of questions from uh, listeners, and thank you very, very much uh, for writing in. Uh, Morphic Fields at Morphic Fields said um, he was at Highbury for the first game after you replaced John Lukic, and he said you were getting some stick. And how did you feel about that? Well, I imagine it's not particularly nice, but what, what was it like your first game? If I'm honest, I don't really remember getting any stick. Right. Well, we'll, we'll gloss over that then. <laughs> Morphic Fields, <laughs> you shouldn't have told us. Uh, Amy, what were, your, what were your feelings when David uh, turned up? I mean, you know, John Lukic was a hero at the Arsenal fan, played in 89 in the, uh, in the game at Anfield. How did you feel when David turned up? Well, David might not remember it, but there was quite a bit of discontent, I think, amongst Arsenal fans. They felt this loyalty to, to John Lukic. And, oh, I do and, remember and that. George Graham was absolutely... <laughs> George Graham was adamant that I'm, I'm getting the best keeper there is here. So he had no problems in being ruthless. But fans don't have that kind of, you know, that kind of info, really. So I think they, they looked at it a bit more emotionally. And I remember, actually, I first saw David Seaman in the pre-season in Sweden, where no. it was a weird time because in, in 1990, English clubs were still uh, banned from Europe. Uh, so going on something like a pre-season tour was the only experience you had of actually seeing the Arsenal um, on foreign soil. And there were about 30 of us. And let's just say there were a few oddballs uh, that made that trip to Sweden. And, and all the games were in these tiny little places uh, Varberg, Vostra Frölunda, and a place called Varnamo, which I don't know, felt like about a hundred people lived there. Um, and I do remember there was a, a, I don't know if you remember this, David, but John Lukic used to do a thing where the fans used to say, Johnny, Johnny, do the twist in the warm up, and he used to do this little <laughs> bum wiggle. Yeah, I forgot I to like tell you about that, Dave. <laughs> exactly. I feel like this is a, a kind of recollection from, you know, medieval times. It feels so old-fashioned. but uh, And it was almost like a test of David Seaman. These, these 30 oddball <laughs> Arsenal fans behind the goal in a Swedish field were like, Seaman, Seaman, do the twist. And you kind of looked around at the and obviously thought, what the hell is going on and who are these people? <laughs> and I think one of the lads might have sort of told you what to do. Theo Foley or something like that and and you kind of a little bit embarrassed 
did this little bum that, wiggle. That's true, and it was though, like, right, it. he's in. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I did it, I was like, oh, God, have I got to do it again? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry, Dave, I feel partly responsible for this. <laughs> that's brilliant. So, Lee, Lee yeah. what about from your point of view, right? You've, you've had uh, John Lukic behind you, and like I say, mm. you've won the title and all the rest of it, and then David Seaman's turned up, England goalkeeper. We were like, why do we need a new goalie? We've got John Lukic. You know, it was yeah. literally like... And I know he's pretty good, but he plays for QPR. He can't be that good. You know, he's one of them. And you know, you know other players at other teams, obviously, but he, it, it didn't stand out for us at the time. You know, we won the league in 89. Uh, Lukey was just part of the furniture. Um, and it was like, why do we need the goalie? And then it, it literally took probably 20 minutes in the first training session. And you go... Oh, that's why we've got a new goalie. <laughs> he was, you know, the, he, he, I mean, I'm talking as if he's not on, on the line and we are very good friends and we've roomed together for many years, so we are close. But his his ability to keep, and it sounds stupid, but his ability to keep the ball out of the net and also be calm at the same time was an absolute godsend for the four of us in front of him. Because there was no dramas, there was no, you know, you had to, you almost turned your back on him, shown him your number, and you, you know, hopefully you don't see him for another ninety minutes. You might see him, see him at half time, but that was the, the way we played. And the, the longer we could keep our numbers facing him, meant we weren't running back to our own goal, so that we got our defensive line right. But you didn't have to keep turning over and going, Why, what's he shouting at? You know, why is he shouting at me? Because he, he had trust in us to just let us get on with it. Every now and again, the big booming voice would just come when a cross came in and you just go keepers and you do everything you can to get out of his way. Because there's no way that you're going up for a, you know, you just get out of his way. Because, you know, he's, he is my mate, but he weighs quite a lot. <laughs> oh, you might especially, get... when he, especially when he lands I'll on you. So. <laughs> you might get slapped in the face by some hair as well coming out of you. So, Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, he was he was just, you know, from day one, you immediately knew why he'd been signed. And uh, his, his calmness, as well as, as I said, he never got beat in training. I mean, Wrighty used to get, Wrighty drive my Wrighty mad in training because he, <laughs> his position was just so good that he never, he, he never had mud on his kit. He was always, unless it was raining, but he, he never had mud on his shorts, he was always clean because he'd, ne he'd never had to dive because his positioning was so good, you couldn't get the ball past him. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the nicest nice thing one, I've mate. ever said about him. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah. We'll clip that. We'll cl <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know what? I, I, I see that calmness from, from um, a defensive point of view, having a goalkeeper behind you who knows what they're doing. But it must work the other way, David, as well. You must look at the defenders in front of you and think, oh, you know what, I'm going to have a slightly quieter afternoon than I would have done at, say, QPR. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, when, especially when you're going behind that back four, it's just, you, I knew it was special before I, I signed for Arsenal. Um, but then when I got there, I realised why it was so special. Um, you know, because it wasn't by fluke, it was by sheer hard work. Uh, George just drilled all the the mannerisms into that back four, you know, with the with the tight rope, you know, the, when one pushed in, the other covered. It was just it was, it was drilled into them so hard, and like almost every training session, you know. So it was it was great to play behind. Um, it just meant that for a goalkeeper 
I didn't always have a lot to do. That's not a, an easy part of goalkeeping. When you've not got a lot to do, and then all of a sudden you you relied on to make a, a save from cold. That's the hardest part of goalkeeping. But I'm, I learned how to do that. And, uh, you know, that back four was, uh, was honestly yeah, a massive godsend for me. I remember when the, everyone suddenly used this word phlegmatic about about David Seaman. It suddenly entered the dictionary, he was, which is essentially a posh word for sort of calm and taking it easy. And when I first said it, I thought it was something to do with phlegm. And it's like, suddenly everyone's like, oh, he's very phlegmatic. <laughs> um, but I wondered who was in charge of the back five as, as such, because you would imagine that the goalie who could see everything in front of him should be the guy who's making sure everyone's doing what they're doing in front of him. But then... Wouldn't have Tony Adams have been in charge? So who was the boss of that back five? You George. <laughs> yeah, that's true. George was the boss. But I mean, if I'm honest, they, they all they all like shouted to each other. I, I got involved when the ball came around the box, you know, so yeah. that I could tell them to try and hold certain lines. Um, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell you that one of them was more vocal than the other because they were all vocal. I think I think the thing with. Um with our back line was we had, we had certain areas and the 18 yard line, George always highlighted the 18 yard line as being like a cliff. If you go into the, the penalty area, you drop off the cliff and you're not in the game anymore. So we always, you know, if we were getting pressurized when we got dropped, we were dropping off that line was virtually, you know, you could not step over that line. So you allowed the play to, to get to there and then that was it. And obviously if the ball then goes wide and you get beat, we were always showing inside from full back. So we tried to keep them from getting down the lines and put crosses in. Because if you get down the line, beaten down the line, and there's a cross coming in, what does Dave see now? He doesn't see the numbers on our backs. He sees our faces because we've got to run then back to goal to mark. And he doesn't want that. He wants to see our numbers and is out the box because that gives him time and space and he can see everything then. So as soon as we get dropped off into the box, that's a bad thing. But then as soon as we step into the box because we're in, under a bit of pressure, it kind of then becomes Dave's kind of shout because you're aware that he's coming towards you and you're running towards the goal. So if there's a cross coming in, you're listening out for that big booming voice going keepers and you're getting out of the way. Obviously, if it's in your area, you clear it, but it's very much a um, goalkeeper's domain once you get into that 18-yard area for me. David, you won the league in season one uh, with that uh, only losing yeah. one game along the way, so like almost invincible. And not 18 only that, goals. Yeah, uh, so few goals conceded. I think the record was 16. And actually, yeah. Arsenal were on 16 until the last couple of matches. Uh, and then two sort of consolation goals in, in comfortable home wins sort of took it upside. How, how do you remember that time of you've just joined, you've won the league in your first season, you've virtually broken the all-time English record for goals conceded? I, I just thought it, it was a perfect start, you know, because yeah. like we talked about earlier with the, with the pressure of taking over from Lukey, um, you know, no, mostly with the fans. Um, you know, because first thing you want to do when you go to a new club is win the fans over, and you know that 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 happened by us winning the league in my first season, eighteen goals. I think it was about twenty three clean sheets, and 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 played played okay actually. You know, did did all right. Um, you know, so it was <laughs> it was just yeah, great. Not, just not, to, not a bad to, year's work. It's very modest. Already, yeah. And it, and it underlined everything about the move because when I was at QPR. I was there for four years and we're always in the top division. 
Um, it was that 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 division that's called Division One that everybody seems yeah. to have forgot about, and all records were scrubbed <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. All these Premier League clean sheets, everything. I, I was I was about seven or eight years in that top division before the Premier League. Anyway, moan over. <laughs> Feel better now, David? Do we? Yeah, <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> but you know, the, the fact that I, I left I left QPR because I wanted to see how good I was. I weren't yeah. just happy staying in the division. Um, on the way over to Highbury to sign my contract, I'm in the cab, and this, this, the driver says to me, he says, oh, he says, what are you doing, Dave? So, are you signing for us? I was like, actually, I am, yeah. He went, you do know they're not very good payers, don't you? I was like, what? <laughs> 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 but, you know, and, and if I'm honest, I signed for less money than what I got offered at QPR when I signed for Arsenal. Wow. You know, so, I, it, was, it underlined everything that I'd put all my trust in. I wanted to see if I could get better. I wanted to win trophies. And then the fact that I took a, a a pay cut as such just made it perfect for me in that first season. I mean, it's interesting uh, about winning the fans over. Alan Davis uh, told us once we were playing away at Tottenham and you made, and there were four one-on-ones uh, in front of the Arsenal fans and yeah. you saved all four. And on the fourth one, you turned around and winked at the fans and they were all <laughs> singing your name. That sort of stuff is what, suddenly you're, you're a legend at that point. Yeah, and, and I remember, I do remember that game very well because I think that was the game where where Tony was uh, otherwise engaged. Tony oh, Adams. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, because he um, he actually got a message to me from from his prison cell or whatever he was in, um, <laughs> saying, "Well played, goalie," because because we'd drawn. I think was it nil nil or one one at top. It was nil nil. So uh, I always remember that game, and obviously. You know, because I had played well. As Amy, I love that you know the, the score of that game, by the way. It's outstanding <laughs> yeah. and very Amy, I must add. Amy, you were also asking a question about strikers. Yeah, I wondered if there were any, any strikers in particular that you feared because they were maybe unpredictable or, or they had a certain way of finishing or certain decision-making that you knew you might be in for a more difficult afternoon. But um, the days when you thought, oh, no, we've got so-and-so today. No, I, I didn't. No, I didn't really fear anybody. Um, but, you know, the, the strikers that you're aware of, people like Fash, like Mick Hartford, you know that when you go up in the air for a cross, that they are going to hit you. You know, even if they can't get anywhere near the ball, they will hit you. Teddy Sheringham was one. He always used to come in on like sixty forties against him, and you know, like try and rattle you a little bit. Um, but the, the two strikers that that always seem to score past me, I don't know why, but. Was Gary Lineker and Robbie Fowler? Mm. Decent you know, they, players, that one. Yeah, yeah but they had a knack. They, you know, I can remember when Robbie scored his fastest hat trick at Anfield. You know, the ball was like I'd make a save, it and ricochet somebody, and then it just fall to him, and he had a little tapping. Yeah, you know, and it was stuff like that. Too. Same with it with Gary. Gary always seemed to do it. You know, and it weren't just at Arsenal that he used to. He obviously got less at Arsenal, but you know, even at QPR, and then when I played for Birmingham as well, he always seemed to score past me. But Gary Lineker didn't score in that nil-nil where you winked at the at the fans at Tottenham. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a few of those one-on-ones were with him as well. I remember. Yeah. We had so many people ask about two thousand three Sheffield United. Yeah, the Paul Pesky <laughs> Solido said. I suppose my, what I wanted to know is, did you have any idea when you made it how good a save it was, or is it just one of those split-second things? It's, it happens and it's gone, and you haven't really thought about it in the moment. It, it was it was definitely a split second thing. Because if, if you watch the clip, you you watch my face when I get up. <laughs> it's like there's no explanation of my face at all. There's nothing on that. 
And I'm like, <laughs> really? And I, well, every time I look back at it now, you know, you think you'd be jumping up and down and everything. But it was just a, it was a reaction. You know, I can remember the, the corner coming in and then it almost like pin, pinballed a couple of times. Yeah. And then Pesky Salido got like a head and shoulder on it. And um, I just remember it being behind me. Thinking, I can't just catch this or, you know, try and hold on to it. I've actually got to, to pull it out of there out of the net rather than push it um, and that's why I, I managed to get my hand behind the ball and then scoop it out rather than you know try and punch it or anything and uh, when uh, when I scooped it out I, I, I've seen it since that uh, Pesky Toledo even tried to handball it in and then um, <laughs> and then Phil Jagielka did me a massive favour by blazing it yeah. over the crossbar yeah. <laughs> if he knows that rebounding my, my save doesn't get it doesn't get remembered at all you no. know and now it's it's every year it comes around you know it's semi-final day it always gets replayed and uh, I actually met Pesky Toledo for the first time about a month ago at the London Football Awards since I've made that save and um, you know and, he, and Bob, Bob Wilson was with me and he, and he said to him he said he said oh do you get reminded about it <laughs> I was like really Bob yeah. <laughs> and Pesky Toledo said yeah every single year <laughs> uh, we've had a couple of questions um from uh, uh, out of context, Stew, uh, Stew ninety five, and I can ask Lee and and David this as well. The difference between George Graham and Arsene Wenger and their style of management. Hmm. I mean, David, from a, from a goalie's point of view, it, I, do you interact less with the manager and more with the goalkeeping coach? Yeah, massively. Um, you know, I always had this thing of if George had a go at me about something because George would always say that you know you oh, you should have come for that cross or whatever. And if I'm honest, it went in one ear and out of the other. Because straight away, I would I would like go over to Bob and say, "What do you think?" <laughs> because for for yeah. a manager that's not been a goalkeeper, yeah, if I'm honest, they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> 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 you know, it was easier for me to, to just go straight to Bob and say, "You know, what do you think?" You know, and then I would get like a, an answer that I would that I would take in. Um, with Arsenal, could have, could have asked you, you room, never, mate. You never really got anything, <laughs> did you? You didn't get anything out of him. You know, he would no, never say, "Oh, you should have done better with that." Or no, he was, he was almost like mind games. George was a coach that wanted to mould you into something, so he had a he had an end an end um, image of what what he wanted you to be, and then he would you would go through a journey of of torture and stress in training in order to get you to that. <laughs> to that point um with Arsene he kind of like it would be a lot of asking how you feel what do you think about that what's what's your mood um he would never say he, he never once said to me do this or I want you to play like this he would just he would just basically let you play like you wanted and then ask you afterwards what I thought about how I played what did you think about this and then he would You'd say, well, I, you know, I thought I did that, and that, this was I couldn't do that because somebody ran off the back of me, and I couldn't get to the player, and that's why he scored. And then he would go, okay, and he wouldn't go, no, I disagree. You should. George would have gone, no, you stupid boy, you should have gone to him, you should have kicked Giggs into the whole end. <laughs> yeah. You know, Arsene never said a word to me after that goal. He never, he never, he never came up to me and said, "Why didn't you take him down earlier? It's the end of the game. You, you know, you've got an opportunity to." You know, George would have, I would have got a fine, definitely. He would definitely have fined me for that. So it was a completely different way of coaching, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, yeah. Like you say, Arsene didn't like that confrontation, that face-to-face -face stuff. 
you know, he would ask you a question, you'd give him your answer. And then like, like Lisa, he, he would go, mm-hmm. and then he'd like walk off, <laughs> you know, and you're like, what? <laughs> Personally, for me, I, w- I would, I preferred the way I had it, George educating me and, and molding me into a, a type of player that knew my job. And then the last few years of my career, the freedom of Arsene and go and enjoy myself and, and play with a, a panache and, a, and a brilliant players and all of that without the restriction was perfect for me. For me, for me it was definitely it was just two massively different styles of football. Yeah, um, mm. you know, not not for, not on the goalkeeping side at all because all the way through my career I had Bob, not through my career but all my all my career at Arsenal, um, mm. I had Bob. You know, so I always had someone to go and have a chat to. Um, regarding goalkeeping, but um, you know when I when I see Arsene Wenger come in and then I see the back four playing out from the back, you know, and, and Tony wanting the ball off me, and I'm like thinking, no way, I'm not giving it you there. <laughs> <laughs> but then having to give it in, you know, and give it to Boldy, and then they're playing out to the fullbacks, and, and it was just a totally different. It was a totally different back four and a totally different way of football. One of the most amazing things about David's Arsenal career is the longevity and the, the, the sheer length of time you stayed number one. And there were, you know, a few sort of pretenders who came in, you know, supposed successors, people like Richard Wright. Did, was yeah. there any point in that 13 years, whatever it was, where you were worried or you felt a genuine sense of competition or did you, were you always secure in being number one? And also, as time went on, did you have to adapt your style a bit as you got a bit older? Um, the only real pressure I, I felt was um, was if I got injured, um, you know, right. and then somebody would come in, you know, you know, to start with, it was like Alan Miller, um, then like Stuart Taylor was there as well, and then Alex Meninga came in, and, and Alex could make Alex could make saves that I, I knew I couldn't, mm. but mm. I could, you know, I did it more often. You know, mm. and he was he was a little bit erratic, um, but that I I felt a lot of pressure with Alex because when he I, I got injured a few times and he came in and did really well. I remember going to Man United and winning um, West Ham in the cup. There was a game the, at West Ham, yeah, yeah, yeah in the game at West Ham. And he had a penalty shootout and all this oh. sort of thing. And that's when I felt <clears> a little bit more pressure. Um, but I knew I knew Alex's game, and then obviously Richard Wright came in. And I was thinking, whoa, the club have paid a lot of money for this guy. You know, mm. what what exactly are their thoughts? And I just thought, right, you know, and, it, and it's something that's in that was in me from probably from when I got released by Leeds at nineteen. You know, I wanted yeah. to show or prove people wrong. You know, I wanted mm. to prove that I was still good enough. Um, and when Richard Wright came in, I thought, right, I'm going to show you. You know, I'm going to show you how how I am. Not not just in games, but in training as well. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I want to ask you actually about, you mentioned it just before about the modern game and how different it is. Um, I mean, you see the way they play the game now. Um, would you feel comfortable playing that way? Or I guess you would have adapted if you grew up in that era. Yeah, it's all about goalkeepers nowadays. They're coached to do that. You know, if I'm honest, I, I had all on coping with a back pass rule. You know, so it was especially with my back that passes. Was hard, you know. Oh man! Yeah, I've already seen a video of that yeah. one this morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> His little casual flick back. Yeah, whatever. But you know, it um, is. It, yeah, just about adapting to the modern game, and 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 I yeah. guess 
I mean, we saw, say, Petr Cech, Cat in the Wall, right, from uh, on Twitter, got a Go Get the Guitar, at Go Get the Guitar, uh, said we saw how much Petr Cech struggled, really, with playing the yeah. game the, the way that the, um, that the modern coaches want it to be played. Yeah, exactly. But when, when I was watching that, if I'm honest, I, I was like, I was really surprised that he was letting himself, he was leaving himself wide open to that, you know, because he obviously had been told to play out from the back. But then there is a decision that you've got to make for for the team as well as you. You know, it, it, it wasn't working and it was making him look bad. You know, so then if that would have been me, I would have, I would have pushed the lads up and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to clear it. You know, because it, it wasn't working and, and it did, it made him look really bad and it made him look like he wasn't used to it at all. In training, you do lots and lots of it. You do lots and lots of drills on the back pass. You know, and then they're playing out from the back. But if I'm honest, there's not many goalkeepers that are really comfortable with playing out from the back. David, when you when you retired, Jens Lehmann came in in his inimitable fashion and uh, probably needed that big personality to take over from you and, and was part of a title-winning team. And then since then, there's been a lot of goalies come and went and it's been difficult to find the guy who I think everybody has felt for a long period they can really, really, really depend on and feel is like a, a goalie at their peak to be a, um, a massive presence for Arsenal. I, against that background, how do you feel about how Bernd Leno is doing at the moment? Are you, are you feeling that this is the guy potentially or do you think it's still a position that's a bit up for grabs? No, I, I do. I do think he's, he's got the potential to to be a, a great goalkeeper. Arsenal. It's going to be hard for him because you know, are we are we as good a team as the team that I went into? Um, <laughs> well, no, um, is the question, the answer <laughs> exactly. there? I think. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, so <laughs> it's going to be hard for him. You know, because he's going to have to he's going to have to like really show his goalkeeping side of it because yeah, you know, the winning of trophies might not happen. What I like about him, he, he doesn't make flash saves if he can if he can make the save easy then he will make it look easy you know that's what I used to try and do um, you know and I like that in the goalkeeper because it shows that they've got an inner confidence and that they can do that you know rather than trying to make what I call a camera save where it's, a, it's an easy save but they push it over the crossbar and then do three twists and two rolls afterwards. You know, I'm thinking, well, what are you trying to prove there? Are you trying to like get a brownie points or something? It does no, sound like just... a very Yorkshire attitude though, Dave, if I may say so. <laughs> you know, but, it's, but for me, that's that's how I look at it. You know, I, yeah. I think, well, the goalkeeper that's, that's made, trying to make it look easy is a better goalkeeper. <laughs> but um, but with, with Leno, I am, I'm very confident. I think he needs a little bit of work with crossing. Um, if I'm honest, you know, it makes, it makes, he sometimes comes out for the cross when he doesn't need to, you know, and I'm like, that's that, that decision on whether to come out for the cross or just say no is a massive decision. And I think he needs to say he needs not to come out as much as what he does. A mm. couple of quick questions before you go, Dave, before we let you go. Um, the Smug Liberal on Twitter said, um, the best advice you would give uh, an aspiring goalkeeper? Play as much as possible because you can train and train and train, but you have to make a lot more decisions in a game than what you do in training. Um, you know, like as in, even when people just said to me, oh, you've had nothing to do, you know, but I've, I've made loads of decisions on whether to come across or not. 
going out my box, clearing up outside the area, all these little decisions, which you don't have to do in training. You know, your training is just drills and it's, it's handling, which, you know, you need to do lots and lots of. Um, but the playing side of it is really important. Um, and also, because... also, Dave, also, Dave, with that, you've got, you're playing with your back four, which you don't exactly. do. We, we very rarely train together. You train with the goalies and then you might come and join an 8v8, but it's not a proper game. You know, count on two hands how many full-sided games we've ever had at Arsenal. You just don't play them in yeah. training. So those little decisions Dave's talking about, do I come out, where's my starting position, that sets everything in front of him. So, you know, if we know Dave's on the edge of his box and he's happy with that, we can set our line in a certain area of the pitch. So little the little communications between you that go on, when the ball goes over the top, I know Dave's going to come and get it. Little things you do in training, you know, little throwing we, me and Dave used to do to each other that I, that, you know, every single time I used to get the ball back to him from a throw-in to buy and he knew I was going to run up the line to throw yeah. it long and last minute turn and throw it back to him and then he'd throw it out to Nigel and all of that sort of stuff comes with playing games and you don't get that in training. Um, and one more question, uh, Nicholas Akim, it's not, it's not really a question, it's more, um, uh, do you want to go to sweden for some pike fishing <laughs> um, <laughs> he's got a friend he's got a friend who makes his own bait right he sounds like a great right. guy um, <laughs> i wondered if that is something that would interest you in some way <laughs> um yeah i'm sure it will because i do know that in sweden they have got some very very big pike so yeah but actually they? making bait for pike i don't know about that one it's normally more commonly known as a, a, a piece of fish <laughs> <laughs> all right well we'll let nicholas know but yeah it would be very interesting <laughs> dave we we talked a bit about this last week when you weren't on the show but seeing as you're here it's remiss probably not to bring it up again but the the arsenal palmer european final was a yeah. was your your experience of that 90 minutes was pretty unbelievable especially given the amount of pain you were actually in how, how bad was it that you had to go through all those injections to get through what was a huge game in the club's history? It was very painful, as as anybody that's had like broken ribs before. Um, oh. You know, even in your sleep, as soon as you turn over, they're aching. And you have to like when you wake up and you get go back to the other side. But I remember when it happened. It happened at QPR actually. Um, a ball came down and it just bounced up in the air. It was like so so obviously mine that Bradley Allen, who was about two foot two. He like decided to like jump and stick his elbow into me, uh, into my ribs, oh. and actually crack three of my ribs. So I'm thinking. So this is, I think, it was about ten days before the game, and I'm thinking, oh god, I'm never going to make this, you know. Mm -hmm. So then we had, um, we were trying all sorts. We were getting, we were getting shin pads that you could mould around your shin. We were like sticking them together and trying to mould them around my ribs, and and then in the end, it, it, it wasn't working. Because I was trying all this out in training, and I was thinking I'm never going to make this game. And then the doctor says, "Look, he says the only other thing we can do is we can inject it." And I was like, "Well, you know what? What happens with that?" He says, "Well, you won't feel anything." I'm like, "But I'll still be able to move, okay?" And uh, and he went, "Yeah, you should be fine." So we before the game, I had I think it was three injections before the game, and it really numbed it. I still had the pad on. Um, first half, I made that save against uh, Zola, you know, which was on that right side as well. So that was even more special. And then coming to half time, and I said, "Look, I, I still need a bit more." And he, he gave me, I think it was another three or four injections at half time. Oh. So, you know, but when when you look back and you win that game one nil, it was it was all more than worth it. 
I wow. told his hand at half time for the other four. It's embarrassing. <laughs> well, whatever works, works, Lee. Thank you for doing it. Uh, thank you for making those saves, David. But I mean, I just, I have, I have broken a rib. I couldn't do a podcast with a broken rib, let alone play a football match. we're talking about injuries, you had a few injuries. Does it affect the confidence? I mean, because you have got to throw yourself about a little bit. Yeah, I, um, no, it doesn't affect your confidence because you just go in there and you go in. You go for the ball. Um, yeah, you know, I've had all sorts of injuries. and Yeah, just instinct. You go in. Sometimes there, there's certain situations where you know you shouldn't really go in, but you do. And that's when I think most of the injuries happen. Um, your, Lee, but, your Lee Chapman one was the best injury oh, ever. God. Oh, no. <laughs> Tell so us ball, about that one. What happened there? I know, the ball, oh, the ball's you, come across you... from my left along the ground. And as I've, as I've gone out to get it, Chapman's coming in to slide it in as well. And he actually, he stood started just above my knee. Ah. And it, the stud marks went right up to my groin area. And oh. I was I was in agony on the pitch. And I, rem- and I remember this as clear as anything. And, and, and I've reminded Strachan about it since. I was laid in a crumple like that, and I've got Gordon Strachan getting like right in my face as I'm laid on the ground. Get up, you southern softy. First of all, I was more offended about being called southern. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm like, oh. and then as, as I moved my shorts, there was a lot of blood on my oh. underslip around my, you know <laughs> what area. <laughs> and Gordon was like, Oh, sorry, big man. And then the physio came on and he looked. And, and what had actually happened is um, Chapman's studs had actually gone into my punctured. throat. Punctured. Yeah, punctured. Oh, let, me, let, me so... just say, let me just say it calmly. Punctured his scrotum. <laughs> oh. and, uh, and this was like about, I think it was about five minutes before half time. So, so, so Gary had come on and he cleaned it up and everything and then stuck a load of Vaseline and, and padding on it. He said, we'll get you to half-time, we'll get you to half-time. I was like, okay, then. So then at half-time, I didn't even go into the dressing room. I just went straight into the medical room, which is just off the, the tunnel at the Leeds United, and had them stitched back up, went back out for the second half. How? Get, let me let me just say that one. Hang on. Went in at half-time, had stitches in his scrotum, and played the second half. There we go. End the podcast on that. Brilliant. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure we can top it after that. Thank you, I David. I had kids after that, so I was all right. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let the listeners know. It's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. Um, I think we're all slightly in shock by that last story, Lee, uh, but we've <laughs> we've let David go. Um, I mean, yeah, obviously, you don't want to embarrass him by, by being effusive about him when he's around. But mm. it must have been, it must have made your job easier, at least, to have a goalkeeper like David Seaman playing behind you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said from day one, he was always an influence because he was so good. And I think when you surround yourself with um, better players or good players, it, it makes you that much better as a um, not only a, as a player but the understanding of the game I mean I don't know anything about goalkeeping although I started off as a goalkeeper randomly when I was a very small because my dad was a keeper so but the understanding of the game um, about what what you're there for what you're trying to achieve what you do it includes the goalkeeper you can't just say oh it's the back four it's the defence, it's the midfield, it's it. that goalkeeper, the interaction between... And they are, you know, Dave will be the first, probably not the first to admit, but there is a goalkeeper's union. They are a little bit different than 
most footballers because we train in a different way. They go off, they're very solitary. They go off in their little groups and we always, you know, doing the warm-up, we always say, oh, there's the weirdos going off into the corner of the training pits to do whatever they, what they do, playing catch, yeah. throwing the ball to each other and all that lot. But there is a, the, once they come back into the group to play the 8v8s and the, there's a, the, there's almost, um, especially with David, there was almost a present. When he came into a, a room or he came into a, a training session, there was, well, the goalie's here, you know, and everything calmed down because everything was going to be great and everything was going to be okay. And from a back, from a defense, defender's point of view, he made me feel safe. And when you feel safe as a defender, you start thinking about where you're pessimistic. So you start thinking about where the problems might happen. So you concentrate on your little nuances of marking a winger or where's where does Martin Keel need me? Where you know what what, what so I don't have to worry about what's behind me and that's that was the biggest compliment I could pay him that he that's what he gave me he gave me the ability to concentrate on my game without having to worry about anything behind me and that for for a back line that was just like gold dust you can't you can't buy that you, you literally you you would ask any defender and, you, and, so, and until you understand the game um yourself you don't realize that that's going on when I was younger I didn't I thought the goalie just made saves and when you get beat and he tips it around the bar that's what he's there for mm. but it's it's so much more than that and and that relationship that you build over and I built it more personally than most because Dave was my roommate for you know 10 11 12 years whatever it was and we spent hours and hours and hours and hours being together in the training, in the training ground, in cars, driving to games, on the back of the coach, in our bedrooms for, for you know, hours and hours and hours. That's all you do. You sit in your room and you're watching TV and you're chatting. And so we're and we're best mates now. You know, I, I that's why he's on here, because I said to him, "Will you will you come on?" And of course, I will. He'd, he'd do anything for me, and I'd do anything for him. And and he loves talking about it. He's a very proud Yorkshireman and and hugely successful big lovable guy lovely lovely thank you lee we'll let you go look after okay, yourself mate. see you Thanks, next week lee. now the football season may be on hold but the athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers in the business and they're still hard at work telling unique engaging and informative stories the athletic can keep you connected to the team and the sport you love sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself just go to the athletic.com forward slash arsenal uh, arsenal pod for a 90-day free trial and now two of the writers who have been hard at work uh with uh unique engaging and informative stories are uh, amy lawrence and um amy, sorry that sounded patronizing but it's true it did sorry amy lawrence and james uh, mcnicholas um amy uh, you wrote a Brilliant piece, by the way. I love reading the piece about Lauren. I really, really did. I know we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what a man. He sounds absolutely fantastic. And I like some of the backstory as well. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, the reason why, even though we, we had the pleasure of his company on the pod a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to go back and try and tell a different side of, of the story for him. I mean, his life is a fascinating one anyway. Uh, you know, he was he was uh, uh, born in Cameroon, but his, his family heritage is actually from Equatorial Guinea. His father was a, a political exile um, 
and they ended up in you know moving on to Spain and he's brought up as a you know he feels very much Spanish and very connected to Spain but also he has his African roots and he's a very bright thoughtful man and has certain kind of principles of living that I admire so for example um, since he gave up playing he uh, has uh, well he, he said himself that he, he didn't go straight into anything because he was so serious about when he was playing he almost didn't allow himself to enjoy winning things um and so when he actually retired he just really wanted to party for a bit uh, but part of that was about going traveling so he yeah. went to see a lot of places around the world so when he travels his aim is to um find out about history and immerse himself in local culture and he's been taking his kids around traveling to all sorts of places in the world to educate them about yeah, they go and stay not in luxury but out there in the bush it might be or with no running water and he wants his kids to be brought up to understand life ain't easy and that not everybody has the same um conditions uh so i kind of admire his philosophy on life he also is really strong about wanting to learn so you know, even though he's been there and done a lot of stuff, instead of just thinking, yeah, I'll just rock up and do my commentary on La Liga, he's like, you know what? I, 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 he took himself to university and did a business, uh, sports business degree. And then he's now just started his coaching badges. Um, and the reason, main reason he wants to do his coaching badges is not necessarily to coach, but so he puts himself in the mind of a coach when he's commentating or when he's watching football. He says, at the moment, he watches like a player but he wants to know what a coach is thinking when yeah. they're under pressure and they've got to suddenly decide, do I substitute this player or change this strategy or how I react? So um, he was brilliant to talk to. He told us a little bit about his his experience of coaching, uh, this coaching course in the coronavirus time and having to work remotely like the rest of us and get yep. used to a whole new load of things. He also told a brilliant story about... Uh, having a, a ruck with Thierry Henry at half time of a game in the, in the Champions League at Deportivo La Coruña, where Henri did one of Henri's um, <laughs> gestures, Look. shall we say, yes. when, uh, when uh, Lauren didn't give him the ball that he was expecting uh, in the middle of a game and he just lost it and kind of waited in the dressing room at half time. And when Thierry came in, just launched a bottle at him, smashed a mirror along the way and... Uh, you know, he's a he's a tough cookie, but a very, very smart guy as well. He was laughing like hell when he told the story. But uh, I, I think that, you know, it's a reminder of the special qualities that you have in top players. It was uh, it was a it was a wonderful read, Amy. It was really uh, a pleasure to read it. Uh, no, really, uh, James, you wrote a piece about Arsenal's um, failed signings. Um, mm. uh, beautifully written, though it was, it depressed me. <laughs> if I'm totally <laughs> honest with you, um, yeah. I mean, there's quite a few. Vardy was the main one, but there's a number of others as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's worth remembering that all clubs have these. We're just sort of more mindful of the ones that associate with Arsenal, and I think because of the way Arsenal previously conducted their transfer business they probably missed out on more deals than most because they had certain parameters they wouldn't go beyond you know whether that related to fees for agents or salaries they were prepared to play players you know Arsene Wenger had this very clear sense of value and if he didn't feel that was being achieved that was it the deal was off and I think that probably did cost Arsenal some terrific players I mean you think of someone like 
Juan Mata, when Cesc Fabregas left, he was sort of top of the list and it didn't happen and he went to Chelsea and we missed out. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's funny because it, it's almost obtuse at the moment to be talking about transfers because yes. who knows what sort of transfer market, if any, you know, we will have going forward. And now another one of our uh, podcasts here at The Athletic, uh, Rafa Honigstein's uh, Stylecast, uh, had Meza Ozil's agent, uh, Dr. Urkut Sogut, uh, on. He was talking about the player's response to the coronavirus crisis. It may be also to take a case, for example, that a club will ask a first-team manager or a coach to negotiate with players, as this may influence some. Right? And particularly, um, uh, Rafael, you can imagine younger players are those on the fringe of the squad who are already fearful, for example, of the futures and the possibility that there may be personal yeah, re- repercussions for them if they do not agree, for example. In those kind of circumstances, it could be questionable, in my opinion, whether any consent from the players would be legally binding anyway. As some players are not in a position to give true consent if they're under pressure to do so, right? So players may be interested, like Raphael, just to give you an understanding, they might be interested in a financial presentation, right? Explaining, for example, I just can give you some points, the financial situation of the club, yeah? In the, in the club finds itself, exactly. How the percentage reduction of players' remuneration was arrived at, right? And what effects such savings would have in stabilizing the club? Yeah, you might hear 20%, 30%. is not enough to say a percentage. It's more the club really needs to explain why this percentage, right? And then what other me- uh, measures have the club considered and implemented, for example, right? Will the club reduce or increase its transfer budget for the relevant transfer window in the coming season? If so, for example, by how much? Will the club be capping the salaries of any new signings in order to ensure that such cost savings are not spent on the salaries of new players? Or, for example, have the club's owners invested any future capital or being asked to do so? Or will the also people talk a lot about that? You might uh, read about that the directors and senior management of the clubs also be taking pay reductions during the period. If so, in what way? And will the club be seizing all dividend payments to shareholders? And if so, for what period? So these are all questions when you talk. So the players need to know about that, right? And once the players really have the level of that insight, they will be in a position then, Raphael, to be able to make an informed choice about whether it is right thing for them to agree to propose pay cuts, right? But without these details, the clubs are effectively asking players to take in on a trust that they're acting in the correct way without any visibility as to whether this that is in this case, in the case. No, he didn't talk about Mesut Ozil specifically. But, I mean, we've discussed this on this podcast uh, in the past. There has been a sort of agreement, not with everyone. And Mesut Ozil has had some stick in the press this morning, has he not? Um, for, for basically saying that he didn't, he wanted to see how things panned out. And briefly, James, I mean, it should be worth saying that uh, Arsenal are one of the first clubs to agree this deal, aren't they? Or a deal of sorts? They will be, you know, if and when it's signed off by everybody. I mean, I think part of the issue here is that they're trying to arrive at an agreement very quickly. uh, And it's a very, very complex situation. And one that, as Amy suggests, involves people earning at very different ends of the pay scale in football terms, who all have their own opinion on it, all have advice from families, from agents. So attempting to deal effectively with one player, Hector Bellerin, who's been relaying the information to the squad, is always going to encounter problems here. And I think, you know, expecting it to be wrapped up 
ex- extremely quickly was always probably unrealistic. Um, in the case of Ozil, you know, he has taken a bit of a pasting in some quarters and you can understand that because you look at his basic salary and you think, well, he can probably afford a cut more than most. But if we know anything about Ozil, we do know that he is quite engaged politically and culturally yeah. and certainly the guy who represents him is too. And he does a lot of work, you know, some of which we hear about, some of which we don't in the charity sector and other types of fundraising. So... I think this is probably slightly more complex than it first appears. And it wouldn't surprise me either if they can eventually find some sort of agreement if the lines of communication are are a bit more open. Let's hope so. Now, this Sunday, The Athletic will be hosting a Premier League awards night. Our writers and podcast hosts have voted across a number of categories and from 7pm on Sunday, we'll be announcing the winners. Before then, make sure you listen to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast every day this week where we will be announcing the shortlist for each category. On Tuesday, we've got the Young Player of the Year. That's followed on Wednesday by Underrated Player and on Thursday with our Team of the Year. And on Friday, you can hear the shortlist for the main awards, the Men's and Women's Premier League Player of the Season. So that is a new show, a new show every day this week on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And to find out the winners on Sunday night, make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app. You can get a subscription to the Athletic right now for free. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of our 90-day free trial. Let's have a song. Uh, in honour of David Seaman, our special guest this week. Amy? Well, uh, given the way he responded to the um, uh, to the Do the Twist song of yesteryear, it feels only appropriate to throw that into the mix. Come on, baby! Let's do the twist! Come on, baby! Let's do the Yeah, I mean, there is a track, and it's quite a nice track, called In Safe Hands by Badly Drawn Boy, which immediately sprung out to me. But I think the twist would be a hell of a way to close the show, so I'd have to agree with Amy. Well, seeing as there's no song which involves a punctured scrotum, um, (laughs) I'm going to go for You Need Hands by Max Bygraves. One for the kids there. Um, Thank you to Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Thank you to Lee Dixon. Thank you, of course, to David Seaman, our very, very special guest, the goalie. And thank you to Teo Papula for uh, producing the show. I've been Ian Stone. This has been the Handbrake Off podcast for The Athletic. Stay safe. See you soon. 